Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi everyone, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Anna Johns about The Woman in the White Kimono, her debut novel. As I've mentioned before, the literary world has shown a lot of interest in World War II lately. But although the war ended in 1945, the consequences of that massive conflict continued to ripple for years. The events of The Woman in the White Kimono begin more than a decade later, although the first scene is a retrospective. My given name is Naoko Nakamura. My married name is Naoko Tanaka. And once, for a short time in between, it was something else. A non-traditional name from an unconventional wedding ceremony held under an ancient tree of flickering lights. We did not have an ordained priest to perform the ceremony. We were not married in a sacred shrine. And I did not have the three customary costume changes but I had love. That evening, night blanketed the village of little houses and bundled it under a cloak of black, but the orange western sky clung to its horizon, peaking, curious. The humid air kissed my cheeks as I stepped from the porch onto the ground, and when I rounded the corner, I gasped. Paper lanterns lined the pebbled path and buttergold orbs illuminated the trees like the yellow hotaru, fireflies, swarming after July's heavy rains so many that when I walked under their branches and looked up, they were like giant umbrellas shielding me from a hundred falling stars. And now, please join me in welcoming Anna Johns. Hi, Anna. I'm really looking forward to talking with you today. Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me. You worked for years as a creative director and businesswoman. What made you shift into becoming a novelist? That is a big question. It's a big question, but I'll try to give you a short version answer of a really long story. Um, I've always written, even when I was really young, and I always thought that I would end up here, but I kind of veered off in my career. I I used it in other things, in marketing, I was in radio, um, and really a life-changing event took place that kind of forced me to look at everything and forced me to slow down, really. I was diagnosed with MS, multiple sclerosis, in 2008. And through that, um, you know, it changed everything, which I'm sure you can imagine. I couldn't really walk. I mean, I was, it hit me really hard from the rib cage down, and the prognosis wasn't really good. And we went to several different neurologists, and I just really wasn't ready to hear that or to live that way. So I sold my business. I hired a nutritionist, hired a trainer, and then um, I, I started karate, which is kind of funny because it's, it's the one sport you need balance and coordination, which I had none of, um, but it, it helped so much. And I actually earned my black belt and then went on the competitive circuit for the next two years and took the title for the PKC and then the ESPN at Disney. So after I won that, I kind of went, okay. I, I've won more than trophies because I've won back my life. 
and what am I going to do with it now? And I mean, that's a really long story to get me to back to writing, but that's when I kind of sat down and said, this is what I've always wanted to do. Let's do it. I'm getting this second chance. So, Wow, that's a very inspiring story. Congratulations. Thank you. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a long story, but you know, it's, and I still, I don't, um, obviously I'm not doing competitive karate anymore because it's so time consuming, but I still kickbox and box in order to stay mobile and to allow me to continue writing, which you're sitting for long, you know, long hours. And you're on the road at the moment. So that must be kind of difficult for you too, or have you got the disease in remission? Um, you know, with MS, there's not really a remission. It's kind of, you always have it. It's always kind of progressing, but you can kind of push it back. So as long as I keep active and keep my diet in check to keep the inflammation down, I seem to be holding it back pretty well. But yeah, I am on the road and that, you know, that's different challenges, but it's all good. It's fun. Well, thank you for sharing your time with us in the middle of your book tour, too. So you mention in the book and on your website that the woman in the white kimono, although it's fictional, is based on stories that you heard when, from your father. Could you tell us about that and how it influenced your decision to write this particular book? Yeah, so the woman in the white kimono, it, it is fiction. It is a historical fiction, but like you said, it's, it's crafted from real historical events and people and stories and, yes, my father's story. So I grew up listening to him talk about this beautiful Japanese girl that he loved while enlisted in the U.S. Navy. And he was only 17. So, you know, this is first love, young love. And her family invited him to a traditional tea to formally meet him. So he practices Japanese. He practiced the etiquette of the tea ceremony, which is elaborate. And unfortunately, when they showed up and they saw that he was an American sailor, they kind of turned him away. So that ended that. Um, and that's kind of really, it inspired the beginning of the story. And I kind of took it from there, you know, my imagination and then research and then all the people that I met that really, really lived that story is how the whole novel evolved. So what other kinds of research did you do? Because your father's story is only one small part of it, and this is a very wonderfully complex and fascinating novel. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. The research was, it was intensive. I mean, we're talking like a six-year rabbit hole of trying to find everything. Um, really, I, I started with the story and then kind of used my father's life I borrowed heavily from it, to be honest, his military experience. I got his military records. You know, how would you go about if he was allowed to marry her, what would he be up against? And so I was into uh, the logistics of Japanese law, American law. And then Facebook um, has wonderful groups. And I hope writers, you know, utilize this because I, I found a ton of Japanese groups where I could fact check and talk to people that are living there. Um, I found military groups. In fact, I found a, um, a military guy who served with my father on the same ship, and he sent me pictures of my dad. And he didn't know him, but it's like the cruise book. Wow. And I actually used it. Yeah, I used that in the novel, and you read the novel, so you, if you might remember Tori getting that letter, that email from someone that had known her dad. So a lot of the research that I did, I used in the book for my American characters' research. 
So um, I'm glad you brought up Tori because uh, she was going to be my next question. Uh, we meet uh, Naoko Nakabura. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly uh, in the prologue. But uh, almost right away, you introduce us to Tori Kovac um, and her father. Uh, so give us a picture of Tori and her place in the novel. Well, Tori, she's a middle-aged woman. She is a, an investigative journalist and really putting her career on hold because she's stepping into that caregiving role for her father, who's, you know, at the end of his life, he's struggling with cancer, and she's kind of moved in near close to him. But what really happens is she ends up having the biggest story of her life because it's of her life, of her father's early life that she never knew anything about. And through a letter, she kind of discovers that there was something else to this, this little story that she's always heard. Um, and there may be some truth to it. And the letter doesn't give you all the information, but it gave her just enough to really dig in and want to know. And that's really the question for the reader, would you want to know? If you were given a letter that would change everything you know about yourself, everything you know about your family, your father, would you hold on to what you know, but with that little, that little inkling in the back telling you something's off? Or would you dig in and find out even if it changed everything, maybe in a negative way. So that's a big question to be faced with. It is a big question, and it's such a vital part of the setup. Could you tell us a little bit more about the letter and what it says? Well, the letter is, um, it arrives at um, the father's house. She's bringing in the mail, and it has, you know, it's, it's tattered, it's worn, it's got Japanese kanji all over it and Japanese stamps, and so it's a curiosity for her. But really, that's it at that point. It's not until her father's reaction to the letter, when he reads it and she catches his emotional response to it, that she knows that that letter means something so much more um, and who it's from. And he can't know anybody still in Japan. That was over 50, you know, 55 years ago. The man's in his 80s. So it, it really piques her her curiosity. And when she is asked to read it from him in the hospital, she doesn't want to read it because she knows it's going to change everything. So I don't, I don't want to give too much away, but I will tell you that it gives a little bit about his life and the life he left behind in Japan. Okay, that's fine. Um, tell us instead then about him and his personality and their relationship, which is quite close, I think. I, yeah, I think she, she definitely has... Um, she puts him up on a pedestal, you know, that's her dad and his stories and, and she just adores him, you know, and to see him struggling. And I think many people are in this situation where they're caring for adult parents and you see kind of them struggling and not quite the person that they always were. That's a, that's a tough situation, but they're close and he's, you know, trying to hold on to his pride and trying to hold on to everything. But I think, Pops is at the end of his life, and he knows there's some things he wants to make right, to clear, and maybe Tori's not ready to hear him. So, yeah, they have a good relationship, and I think it continues through it, but that definitely throws a, a, a big question mark in Tori's mind. So we then go back in time to Japan in 1957, uh, where the 17-year-old Naoko is at home with her family, and she's worried. Why is she worried? Well, Naoko is 
like you said, 17, she's a teenager. So now, remember, this is set in 1957-58 Japan. So we're well past World War II. We're a few years past the occupation. So these teenagers, they remember the war. They understand it. They see their parents struggling with rebuilding. But they didn't really experience experience it. They have the American culture being bombarded. Um, pop culture, hula hoops, Elvis. You know, it's it's everything is is kind of gravitating towards that. So there's a new war going on, and it's between the old traditions of Japan and the new, you know, kind of an uh, individualism of America. And she is definitely caught in the middle of that. She, you know, boys. She's boy crazy. She likes everything American, just like many of her friends, and that includes the American sailor that she wants to introduce him to her family and they're not going to accept him, but she's clever. She's smart. And she's trying to figure out a way to have it all, you know, the love of her life and the love and respect of her family. So yeah, that's, that's, that's setting it up to be just a big struggle. And what of her family, who are they? What, what are the, what are their goals for her? Well, I think, and then this is one of the things you asked earlier, like, how did I get to the research? Well, in asking the question, why did this family turn my father away? If you think about it, a lot of um, Japanese families at that time were pushing their young girls towards military guys to come to America for a better life because Japan really was still trying to rebuild at that point. People had lost their businesses, had lost their homes. And so I had to ask myself, why did they turn him away? He was possibly a better life. So, you know, you use deductive reasoning. She must have come from money. She must have come from a higher status. And that's really what I built into Nayoko's um, narrative is that her family would have been of a higher status with better options for their daughter, options right there in Japan. And it you know, the way I, that I wrote it was that it would be a business deal where the son of one of his business associates, which would help the family business to recover and to continue to build, was interested um, in a marriage. So again, it just set it up. Tell us a little bit about Naoko as a personality. I mean, you mentioned that she's young and she's boy crazy, uh, which is not exactly unheard of in 17-year-old girls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but she's also, she's not uh, the sort of uh, biddable Japanese girl that we think of. Um, and it's probably unfair that we even think of it that way. But she, she's definitely not the stereotype. No, she's not. She's still respectful. She's still very family-oriented and wants her family's admiration and respect and, and, you know, but she's willful in a quiet way. She's going to maneuver things and, and people in order to set up the circumstances that maybe they will accept, you know, this boy that she's fallen in love with. So she's definitely pushing boundaries. And then when she's kind of met with these big life choices, she chooses the unthinkable. You know, she, she really puts herself out there. So I see Nayoko as a very strong, independent um, young woman. Not loud, not outspoken, but very strong and clever. Right. I, I would describe her that way as well. Yeah. 
She's very attached to her U.S. Navy men, uh, whom she calls Hajime. Uh, and again, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. But uh, by the time we meet them, they're already romantically involved. And I know he's based on your father, but he's not your father. So what right. is his story and what draws the two of them to each other? I think for, for Hajime, he comes from the south side of Detroit and struggling economy there and not a lot of, you know, he, he's looking at his life and saying, I'm going to walk in my father's footsteps who walked in, you know, his father's footsteps. And he just sees a very small life. And by being in Japan and seeing the world and meeting Naoko, he, he sees a different life for himself. And I think it gives him some sort of sense of peace um, that he's not finding back home. It's more adventurous. And for Nyoko, what maybe she sees in this, this boy is that she's accepted for exactly who she is, what she says, what she thinks. It's never tampered or quieted. You know, it's encouraged. And so they really complement each other in that way. So, yeah, I, th- I think they're a good fit. It's just that society wasn't ready for it. And in a perfect world, what would happen in their minds? Oh, yeah, of course. They want the whole happy ending, right? You know, the little house that he rents for them. They see themselves having a family and having her family involved and having his family fly out. You know, it, it's very young love and idealistic and unfortunately not practical, not in that time and time and age, not with, with the situation the way it was. But it, it's nice to know that, you know, the young people can get past everything and see that. And that is what happened to many. So, yeah, young love is, is, is uh, exactly that, isn't it? It's <laughs> idealistic. It is. It really is. And unfortunately for them, uh, yeah. Hajime encounters her family. And this is obviously the part that you mentioned did come from your dad's life. But I'm not sure that the reaction was exactly the same as he experienced. So what, what happens in this meeting? Well, in this meeting, the father, you know, they're blindsided. And I, I hope I do justice in the book. I think I have, and I hope I do, in showing that the family is as strong as they reacted. They're not really at fault either. Their reaction is, who is this boy? You know, this is not acceptable. It, it could throw a wrench in the father's business, in the older brother's business relationships. It could really cripple the, the family's income. So it's, it's really, she's thinking for herself, and they see her as selfish and not doing what's best. So, yeah, they react very strongly and basically make her choose. You can have that boy and, you know, that life, but you're not going to be a part of ours, completely cut off and just exiled from the family. Or she's going to stay and marry the boy that they've set up and, you know, have her family and the traditional and, and so on. It's a big reaction, but it did happen many times. That's, that's the crazy part. I mean, these, these poor girls were just exiled, especially if found pregnant. They were not, it was not a welcomed child. Yeah, I do want to get to that in just a second. But I think you do do a good job. And, you know, if you think about it, um, I mean, I'm 
old enough that if I had a 17-year-old daughter walk in and say, I'm gonna, I, I want to marry this guy from halfway around the world, my initial reaction would be, what? <laughs> Are yeah, you nuts? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, and my own son is in the military. He's a mm-hmm. Marine and he's 22. And I can't imagine him being in that situation. And he's much older than them. Right. You right. know, so it, it puts it in perspective. These are very young teenagers trying to make their way in the world. And it's, it's, they're up against the whole world, really. Right. They are. And the other thing I liked about this novel, because I think you really do do a good job of showing the parents' point of view as well, is that the young man that they want her to marry is actually quite appealing. So it's not like, um, yeah, he is. So you can see why they're thinking, what? Why why is she doing this? Why is she so set on this? I think readers expected me to and will expect me to make him not likable. So it's easy to go, no, we don't want Satoshi. But, you know, why not? Why couldn't he be the really perfect match for her? Right. And, and in yeah. many ways, he would, he probably would be. In other words, yeah. they're, they're from the same culture. They have the same expectations. It's, yeah. it's not and easy. he's a good guy. Mm-hmm. He's a good guy. He's good looking. He's you know, has a great career ahead of him, and he's really sweet on Nyoko. So, yeah, it kind of puts, I think the reader then sits there and goes, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) She's going to throw all that away, and oh my gosh. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So we know from the book description that Nyoko does become pregnant with Hajime's child, and things really go south. Uh, for them. I'm not going to ask you to, you know, give away spoilers or anything like that. Let's talk instead about the the broader picture, um, which you hinted at, that there is something, uh, you know, that there were a lot of Japanese girls who found themselves in this position oh, yeah. in this period. Yep. So tell us, what were the kinds of challenges that a young girl in Nayoko's position faced in 1950s Japan? Well, to keep it into real perspective, 10,000 babies were born before, during, and after the war and occupation. 10,000 between U.S. servicemen and Japanese women. 10,000 babies did not survive, but they were born. And according to uh, Mickey Sawada, she's the founder of the Elizabeth Sanders Home, which is the orphanage I mentioned in the novel. Only 700 babies were surrendered to the home. So, yeah, these women, and and you have to also think, too, a lot of the boys didn't know they left a pregnant girlfriend behind. You know, they're in the service. They just come and go, and some of them did, and rapes happened also. But I think there's a large majority of people that tried to make it work, and it just didn't work. And these girls were, you know, exiled from their families, socially banned, a lot of them were sent to homes to have the baby to kind of just be out of sight for a while and then show back up. But I just can't imagine being that young on your own in that situation, no money, nobody will help you. They don't want to be associated with you. I mean, what do you do? Right? It's an impossible situation. It is. And of course, you know, we're talking about Japan, but it wasn't much better in the U.S. or Australia or Europe. Uh, You know, in the 50s, this is before the pill and and the sexual revolution. Yeah. It was really tough for unwed mothers. It was, yeah. And the ones that were able to get married and come to the U.S., you're right. It, It wasn't a great situation for them here either. 
I mean, if you think about it, it was only so many years after the camps and after, you know, you, yeah, society just wasn't quite ready. And there you are, you know, what do you do? So when you talk about the 10,000 babies, you you do mean that 10,000 didn't survive. It's not just that only 700 were surrendered, that the rest, as far as you know, they they didn't make it, which is an astonishing figure for a period of, what, five, ten years? Yeah, I mean, it it is amazing. The the estimate is that about 10,000 babies were born through that time period. Um, There were a couple homes that were set up for mixed-race babies, and they had to be set up specifically for these biracial children because they weren't welcome in the other places. Um, the biggest one was the Elizabeth Sanders home and she took in 700. The other ones were churches and they maybe had a hundred or two. So yes, you know, a lot of, a lot of these babies were abandoned and killed, you know, left. It's, it's horrible. It's an absolutely horrible situation to think of. And so when I look at, the 700 that, you know, survived through the Elizabeth Sanders home. That's amazing. And I've met, I know we'll talk about that, but I've met some and interviewed them and their stories are just amazing. And even then, you know, it's 700 surviving in an orphanage, which is not the ideal way to grow up. Well, no, right. And many of them remember being there and were adopted out. Um, the ones that I did meet and have interviewed, they, we kind of all met online through a blog where there, somebody had posted something about the Elizabeth Sanders home and they found each other. I found them there and now there's a Facebook group and there's 100 um, members, including the great aunt of the Elizabeth Sanders home. She is the, I'm sorry, the great niece of Elizabeth Sanders. So there's this, you know, 100 here in the States is great. It's yes, it is. It's astonishing. So um, let's talk a little bit about the alternative. Uh, we won't say how the demon midwife is reflected in your plot, but tell us who she was. This was a historical person. Yeah, she's a real life person. Um, the demon midwife was a woman in the 1940s, so a little bit before my time frame. But that's who I based um, my midwife on. This one was a midwife to a hospital and she was arrested with, I think there was 160 bodies found of infants. Um, she was sentenced and for eight years, but based on her appeal that she was providing a value, valuable service because these women couldn't care for them, didn't want them. They couldn't feed them. The babies were starving. Um, she actually only served four years. Wow. So she won her appeal. So again, another perspective, you have to look at, you know, and that's what I try to do when I write. I don't try to, to point fingers or say blame. I mean, it is what it is. So I'm just trying to show the stories and let the reader, let you make up your own mind about what, you know, what's right, what's wrong. So bring us back to Tori. Um, she does decide to find out the truth uh, about the tales she learned, and she even reads the letter. What makes her so determined to find out and go forward um, when, as you say, it's a difficult thing and many people would choose just to close their eyes and walk away? Right. I think, honestly, I think because she's an investigative journalist, so it's, it's naturally 
in her personality, in her character makeup to dig in. But you raise a good question because why would she want to kind of mess with her image of her father? Her father in her mind is, you know, he's perfect. He's this great guy. He tells stories. She adores him. And what she reads in that letter, while it doesn't give all the answers, it it brings up enough suspicion that maybe he wasn't quite the person she always thought he was. I think to answer your question, Tori actually had to dig because in her mind, it couldn't be true. He had to be perfect. So she was trying to reconcile the man she adored with the man she was discovering and hoping for the best. So what would you like readers to take away from the woman in the white kimono? Really just that the the children of this time period, the the struggles that they went under. Um, you know, we, we read a ton about World War II and even a, there's great stories of the occupation, but there's not a lot about the aftermath and what happened. And the people that were kind of caught up in it, caught in the middle, were really the children. And so if, if they take away nothing else, it's that they learn a little bit about this unknown part of history. It's just not that well known. And they kind of look at it a little bit differently. You know, my, my whole thing was just to shine a light, a bright light into an area that really wasn't well known without pointing fingers, without casting blame and without offering resolution, because really there is none. There's just the stories. And I think you did that really well. Um, I do want people to know that this is a beautifully written novel and I I read a lot of novels, especially a lot of historical fiction. That won't surprise anybody, but I just devoured this. Um, oh, that's great. <laughs> so it was Thank great. Um, and what about you? Do you already have a new novel underway? I Well, I have two that I'm outlining, but I'm not sure which one I'm going to go with. So I'll probably end up writing both. I just don't know which one will be next. So we have one that kind of is in the 1960s back in Mexico with the um, overwintering sites for the monarchs. I raise monarchs. So, of course, that, you know, that has interest for me. And the other would be um, tied again into my family, um, family's history of migrating over from Slovakia. So I don't know which one's going to be next. We'll see. Well, let me just ask you very briefly about the monarchs, because I did see that on your website. Uh, how long have you been doing that, and what got you interested in raising butterflies? Well, uh, three years. So this is my third year, and it was supposed to just be a little small, you know, way station, a little garden to help. Um, my my aunt, um, whom I adore, she started one in, in uh, Michigan. And she kept sharing pictures and I just kind of, it just kind of inspired me. So of course I had to start one and then it just got out of control. (laughs) So now we have like acres of, you know, wildflowers and, you know, milkweed and it's, it's so much fun. It's really rewarding just to kind of bring them all the way through and release because I'm in Indiana, which is where the migratory path is for Mexico. So we get the super generation, the really big ones that live eight months. So it's fun. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Anna. Oh, no, thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I'm so glad you enjoyed the book. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. 
a podcast channel in the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Anna Johns about the woman in the white kimono. Find out more about her at www.annajohns.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network. <laughs>